this is the third verse on church music, which means I guess we've had two classes so far. And uh, uh, this is our third. I think we'll probably do one more, a fourth. I just am having trouble letting this area go. It's much too fun and different. Bless you. Um, So with that, what's happened so far? What have we covered? Well, we started with the Old Testament and we went through the New Testament and we we saw biblical uh, um, uses under under both uh, testaments of of music in the, the Israel and the private life of of the Jews and in the private life of Christians and in the New Testament. After that, we went through the early church and we charted through some, and listened to some reproduced sounds from some songs that archaeologists and others have been able to find and, and put back together. And we got up to the three hundreds, but after the three hundreds, we found that it was really slow going in terms of development of church music. Wasn't quite pushing a boulder uphill, but there wasn't much gravity to help get that momentum going. And so from 300 to 1,000, church music, while it had changes, to our ears, those changes were very minimal. To our ears, it basically sounds like chanting. Because they did chants and they did chants. And, they, and yes, Gregory came around in the 600s and he started some singing schools. And ultimately, Gregorian chants came into fashion named after him. But to many of us untrained musicians, they sound like chants. And the chants were all basically the same. There was a single melody line. There was no harmony in the singing. In fact, that was held up as one of the, 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 the reasons music was so doctrinally pure because you should have one body of Christ and so you have one melody and one note being sung if you will by all that are singing and so that was being uh, uh, used all the time the songs were either in Latin or they were in Greek they were not in the vernaculars or the common tongues that started arising among the people through this time period and so there really wasn't a lot of, of movement with church music during that time period. And then we looked last week and saw that that, that you kind of started getting some momentum and the ball started rolling a little bit better around 1,000, maybe even a little bit before that. We looked at Guido from Arezzo who was able to take a Gregorian chant that had one note starting with uh, uh, ut and then the next note started the Latin phrase re and the next one mi and the next one fa, so... La, and you'll remember, and that's where we get, we changed oot to do, which sounds a lot better. The sound of music never would have worked with oot, a deer, a female deer. Um, so we have do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, but that's where it came from. And so with, when Guido not only gave us that, but he did that as part of a way of teaching the, those in his music schools how to sing. And he, and he came up with musical notation and he used the palm of his hand to help explain the notes. And with musical notation, all of a sudden, there was room for improvements in singing. It's a whole lot easier to sing when you know what you're singing. Makes sense. Now, that got us into the years 1000 to 1450, which is kind of what we looked at last week. Um, uh, we looked at the Catholic liturgy as it was in 1000, as it had developed. And we looked at some changes that came about through all of that. And that got us up to 1450. Now, I arbitrarily picked the line 1450 for this. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. But there are a few things that happened during that 1000 to 1450 time period we did not have time to cover last week. And so that's where we are this week. 
um, between 1050 and 1300, there were a lot of changes in society in Western Europe. Before 1050, Europe was really not leading the world in cultural development. The Muslim uh, uh, education system was much stronger than that of Western Europe. Uh, uh, Western Europe was militarily not in great shape at the time. There was too much infighting and struggles amongst them. But in about 1050, things really started clicking for Western Europe. The population took off. The economies started really going well. The farmers were producing bumper crops and feeding lots of people. The infighting stopped enough to where society could grow, but the infighting stayed consistent enough to where everybody had to stay on their toes and get the latest weaponry. And we're always looking for advances and cultural changes. And so what happens when society moved like that, you find all of a sudden towns starting to grow again. Bigger towns, Paris, London. Some of these towns start expanding. And as marketplaces grow and get stable, and the economy grows and the population grows, all of a sudden you've got room for people to kind of specialize. You know, it's not you got 15 people so everybody's farming for themselves in the little community. You might have 500 people. So you got your farmers, then you got your other guys who can specialize and work in the tools for the farmers so that the farmers have tools. And the farmer doesn't have to do his own tools and go out and do his own farming. He can get the tools done by someone else, spend all his time farming. It's almost like Ford's assembly line revolutionized uh, industrial America in the early 1900s. It's the same principle. You're able to just sit there and do your work at your station. And so people start specializing. And that has an effect throughout culture, but it has an effect on church music. Because now all of a sudden, if you want to be a musician, you don't have to... Uh, 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 design and build your own instrument. You got a guy doing it full time. You don't have to be the one who 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 does instruments or, or voices or writes songs or performs or learns music in the midst of everything else. Farming, milking the cow, taking care. You, it, it's much more specialized. Does that make sense? And so we see changes really starting a lot quicker culturally. And those changes start a lot quicker in church music as well. And the chants, starting in around 950 to 1000, those chants all of a sudden turn into melody in different parts of the church. And so instead of it being this, this droning chant, well, it wasn't always droning, that's not fair. The chants went all over the board. But now all of a sudden you've got more of a singing melody. Uh, not only that, but this is when what traditionally had just been take the psalm or, or take the liturgy and, and put it in. All of a sudden, people have time to start learning different things. And they learn that rhyme has something really catchy to it. It helps you remember it. It helps you fill in the blank. It helps you, you know, know what word may be coming. It helps you think about the song. And, and so we see rhyming come into fashion in songs and that hadn't been there before and we see that Europe's boom becomes society's boom which becomes the church's boom so now when you're building you don't have to just have a guy who's a bricklayer 
you got guys who are really good. That's all they do. They don't just lay bricks. They don't just lay stones. They're not just a stonemason. Some of them specialize in carving stone. And I'm looking at, at Al. Al Mendoza and Mary Nell uh, worked hard to build where we live. And as good a guy as Al is, he wasn't out there every day himself with a hammer and nails. <laughs> Else we'd still be framing. Um, he had crews. And his crews were specialists. And he had this guy who's a, 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 a cabinet... What do, you, what do you call Scotty? A trim carpenter. And I mean, this guy's a trim carpenter. Now, I don't know if he can... Like uh, uh, do stucco. I doubt he can put the roof on. But I'm here to tell you. You want a cabinet to fit in this space. Exactly like that. Looking just like this. With this kind of trim. You tell him. You describe it to him. You come back. He does it. And I mean he (laughs) nails it. It's there. Okay. Because he's had time to specialize. That's what society is producing during this time period. So now the church starts building the Domo in Milan, an excellent example of what has become called Gothic architecture. The idea being, if you're a stonemason, use your craft and your ability to the glory of God. Who deserves a more detailed, ornate, incredibly uh, focused driven effort of a stonemason who deserves that more than God nobody so architecture takes on a whole new scheme and it's not just on the outside when you build a church like the Duomo in Milan the inside is massive the cavernous hall of an assembly area is huge with these stone walls and these ornate uh, uh, um, stained glass windows. Uh, Bono with U2 was playing a concert recently in Milan and he commented that he had gone because a video was being made of the concert. He said, this is kind of the birthplace of movies. He said, I went to see the Duomo with those stained glass windows as the sun came through. He says it's like the early movies. You can just watch the scenes change from glass to glass. I don't know if it's right or not, but but it's certainly there. And it's, it's, it's so, in a sense, ostentatious, but in a sense, so bold and so huge and so incredible. Now, the question becomes, you've got a building like that. You've got windows like that. You've got an interior like that. What are you going to do to dress up your music? See, they, they start thinking, okay, well, we want our music to be as ornate as our architecture. And at first, it just starts with uh, them doing what I call the Sarah. Sarah is our eight-year-old. When Sarah was younger, she used to make up songs. She would make up songs that are not necessarily going to make it on the radio. They would be things like, I love my daddy, but I don't love the dentist. And she would end the songs, and you would know she's ending because she would always end it on a high note. So it would be, I love my daddy, but I don't love the dentist because he is a dentist. 
and you'd know she was done. Well, she was just a good student of church history music. Because what they started doing is they'd just flower on the amens or whatever's ending the song. And it'd just go, oh, it'd make the sevenfold amen look like a short ending. I mean, it was just all over the place. And then they made another advance. And singers started singing different lines at the same time. So you'd have one person who's singing, salvation was made known in the sight of the people. And while that person is singing that, someone else would be singing, Lord, 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 the whole time. Polyphony is what it's called in musical terms. And from there, it's not far, just a few changes and all of a sudden, singers start singing a harmony line. Now, harmony at first was not the kind of harmony that we're used to. I don't, it didn't start out with four-part harmony, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, S-A-T-B. No, it started out with one person or group of people singing a melody. And someone else generally singing about a fifth below. Or not about, a fifth below. And so that's the way it was. Now, what else happens? During this time period, you got time and people who are concentrating on music. And all of a sudden, you got Guido's taught us some more notation. People are starting to write down music. Sheet music is coming out. And so you can go down to Rice, and in Rice they've got a collection of some medieval sheet music. I pulled up one of the, the, the sheet musics from medieval time that you can go see at Rice. This is the Kyrie Eleison. You can see the K-Y-R-I. They kind of hide the E over here on the next line. That E kind of, they got carried away on the E. But that E carries forward into the Eleison right there as well. Lord, have mercy, the Greek. Kyrie eleison. This one happens to then go into the G-L-O-R-I-A. That was a song by Van Morrison. Uh, G- uh, uh, Gloria. But this is not that Gloria. This is Gloria in excelsis Deo et untera pax homini. That's glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to man. So you have this. Now, not only that, but once you have that and you've got this song writing, you know what comes next? Before everybody's writing these songs, the singer's up there just kind of doing it himself. Okay? But now all of a sudden you got notes. People are learning to read them. People are learning to write them. And so you have composers who write things that may not be able to sing it all that well, but they're able to hand it to Johnny Goodvoice and say, hey, would you make my song famous? And so you, you start having a division between composers and performers. Now let me give you a, a clear example of this. Here's a Gothic building where the foundation was laid in 1160. It's a famous building. Anybody recognize it? That's the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. No, it's a different Notre Dame. This is the Notre Dame in Paris, not Indiana. Um, Notre Dame, the foundation's laid in 1160. It takes them about 23 years, I think, or maybe 28 years before they have the first service there. The building's not actually completed until the 1200s, but they get it dried in enough to have services while the the people... Now, you, you see this, and look at the inside. The inside, again, is this massive cavernous area. What music can match this architecture? 
Well, in Paris, they actually have musicians assigned to the church. And it is the Paris musicians of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. I'm sorry, I'm from Lubbock. I really have trouble saying some of this stuff. It is the Paris musicians of Notre Dame who come in and bring out some interesting renovations in music. Not renovations, innovations in music. The first piece that's composed and read from notation that scholars are able to find happens there in Notre Dame where a composition is done for people to then take and read, sight read. It's, it's, uh, it's not a situation where someone's writing down what they've been singing. It's someone deliberately writes for the first time sheet music and hands people to sing. And that's done there. That's also where timing is added to notes. So you've got not just pitch, but duration. And it's basically the same timing signatures with modifications that we use today. They added the little tails for those of us who are not musically inclined. Not only that, but three and four part harmony for the first time is set out in the church. I want to give you some examples. These are reproductions that that scholars have done based upon the actual uh, uh, the actual thing the uh, see if this works this will be interesting um, this is a uh, uh, two part harmony first I think Let's see if we get this Now you get the third part. That's enough. It's kind of hard to turn that off. I mean, you, 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 it, it almost transports you. Doesn't that sound like it belongs in there? Um, and and uh, uh, so this is brand new, but it emanates out as other churches uh, grab hold of it and say, yeah, gee, we'd like to do this as well. Let me zip past the others. I had a couple other selections. We don't have time for them, but Norton puts out a History of Western Music CD collection that you can get from Amazon.com where they reproduce a lot of these songs. And uh, uh, it's uh, certainly worthy of you listening to if you ever want to listen to these in more depth. There are hundreds of songs and a book, a workbook that you can get with it that explains why those songs were chosen and what's specific about them. Now, not only are the, is that happening to the music, but once you get guys who are making a living out of making instruments, don't you know they start making them better? Doesn't that make sense? I tell you, I don't make instruments. I make bread, though. I love to bake bread. And when I bake a, a, a new kind of bread the first time, generally the donkeys love it. But they're about all that get to taste it sometimes because it just doesn't really turn out well. But I'm telling you about the third or fourth time I make that same kind of bread, I might invite you over. It's, it's something almost uh, good enough to, to say, I made that, you know? And uh, I get it down 10 or 15 times, you'd come over and think Becky made it because it's really good, all right? But uh, it takes a while to get there. You just don't 
All right, same thing with instruments. Now, let me show you the instruments they had at the time. This five-string VL. This is the predecessor of the violin or the viola. And uh, it was five strings, whereas our violins and violas now have four. But this was an instrument being used with a lot of church music and in a lot of churches. There were also the psaltery, which is basically a zither. And uh, uh, it's a, a wooden sound box with the strings stretched over it. And then there's all of our favorites, what we wish we had today, the hurdy-gurdy. The hurdy-gurdy, there was a crank at the end and you'd turn the crank and inside was this wheel that would strike the strings. And you could, you could move, uh, put, put pressure on the strings in various places. I don't know, maybe it's a predecessor to the electric guitar, but uh, uh, I just like the name. Hurdy Gurdy, it sounds like it could have been a song written for the electric guitar at least. The 1100s is where we see the installation for the first time of organs in church. Prior to 1100, a lot of the church music is a cappella. And by a lot, I mean about 80 to 90 percent at least. We do have recovery of songs. The one we played from Onkirinkas, Egypt. That was the earliest church song we've got that dates from the 200s. And it was written to be played and it's got the musical transcripts to be played with the harp. But we know, as we discussed last week, for a large period of time, these churches and and the services are being sung a cappella. But uh, by the 1100s, we start getting an early installation of organs. The organs really just being invented. By the 1300s, almost all the churches have them. At that point, they're pretty pervasive. And now we see church music really starting to roll downhill. It's gathered a lot of momentum. 1450, a huge date in church music. Why? The printing press, Gutenberg. This is yet another area where the printing press made huge changes, not just in society, but in the church in particular. Because now instead of having to hand write out all of those sheets for someone to sing, you've got an ability to go... Crank, 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 crank. Here's 50 copies. Let's all sing together. And so what used to be singing by the trained soloist now can become congregational singing. And there's no one in history, I believe, that that used the printing press as effectively as Martin Luther. I had this slide in last week's presentation about how Luther turned the church upside down in music. And he did. Let me tell you what Luther did. Luther comes on the scene and he starts using street melodies instead of church melodies. He uses melodies that you'd hear in in taverns. He uses melodies that you'd hear from the wandering minstrels. He uses melodies that people might be singing as they're sweeping up their floor. And he takes these street melodies that are easier for people to remember that are more appealing to people's tastes. And to them, he applies Christian lyrics. Now, Luther himself was a musician. He was trained with the lute, he was, uh, uh, which is the predecessor of the guitar. He was, uh, 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 had quite a singing voice as well. And so he wrote a number of hymns. If you go back to our Luther lesson, we even stopped and sang in his honor one of his most famous, the Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, Luther also taught congregational singing. And so pass the papers out, let everybody sing together. It was not something done much before Martin Luther came along. Luther wrote his songs in common German. 
So you didn't have to sing a language you didn't understand. You can say Kyrie eleison all you want. But if you hadn't been in this class or somewhere else to learn, you don't realize you're singing, Lord, have mercy. Um, and then Luther brought in the masses with song. That's kind of a joke that kept me laughing for three minutes when I did the PowerPoint. So someone at least get it and chuckle. Thanks. Here's, what I'm, here's the reason it was a joke that no one seems to think is very funny but me. It was music almost as much as any theology that had people leaving the Catholic mass in droves and going to worship with Martin Luther because the people love the music. The Catholic Church rails on Luther's theology, but you find an equal amount of railing for that blasted music he's got that's pulling away all of the people. Sorry. So Luther brought in the masses <laughs> with song. Yeah. Okay. Now, if we look at the three arms of the Reformation movement, we've got Luther as one arm. You'll recall from our Reformation classes, Zwingli is a second arm. Ulrich Zwingli from Switzerland. He took a different tact. Ulrich had a wonderful voice. Ulrich wrote songs. Ulrich was a devout man who believed he would speak where the Bible speaks, but be silent where the Bible is silent. He didn't use that phrase. That phrase doesn't get used for a while longer. But that was his, that was his perception. Ulrich says, there's not going to be any singing in my churches. You should not be singing in church. And if you sang in his churches, you got like kicked out and put in jail because he also ran the government. No singing because scripture does not say you should sing in churches. Now, someone might say, but wait a minute. What about Colossians 3.16 where Paul says to sing and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Ah, he would say. The end of that verse says singing and making melody in your heart. To God. So yes you can sing in your heart. It's your voice you cannot sing with. You sing and make melody with your heart. Is the charge of scripture. It specifically says with your heart. It doesn't say with your voice. And Paul knew the difference. And so Zwingli. And his churches eliminate church singing. The third arm of the reformation. Was John Calvin. Another part of Switzerland. John Calvin allows singing, but he says it's got to be a certain kind of singing if it's going to go on in our churches. Here's what my rules for singing are, Calvin would say. Number one, the lyrics need to come from the Psalms. Now, you don't have to sing exactly the psalm, but the lyrics themselves need to, they can be a metrical representation of the psalms, but they have to come from the psalms. You get your scripture Psalms, those are the songs you're supposed to be singing in worship. So any song you sing has to come from the Psalms. Okay, that's rule number one. Rule number two, no harmony. I want it single. Everybody sings the same. Nobody, nobody's voice is supposed to stand out. Nobody stand, nobody's part stands out. No, none of this flowery, nouveau harmony stuff that's been going around. I want everybody singing the same note. Number three, one note per syllable. You got a syllable in a word, you get a note. I don't want any runs. None, none of this, ah, men, 
It's got ah, man. Okay? No ah, man. No, it's ah, man. One note, one syllable. One syllable, one note. Okay? That's his rule. No instruments. Acapella. Everything. So now let's take a classic song that one of his students, William Keith, wrote uh, uh, there in Switzerland. Do you know this hymn? All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. You know that hymn? Mark Langford, sing it. Well, stand up and make the rest of us sing it with you. Come on. Come on, Mark. Stand up. Be bold. God gave you a voice. Let's use it. Huh? Yeah, come on up here. That's fine. You can be the center of attention. You've got it in the back. You can sing with Mark. Okay? That on earth do dwell. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with prayers, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. All right, time out. We're going to sing the second verse. Actually, whichever one you want. We're going to do one more verse of this. But y'all notice as you're singing. One note, one syllable. One note, one syllable. And by the way, I've written out on the, the handouts, you've got alto, tenor, bass. Don't sing those lines. Calvin will roll over in his grave. Everybody sing with Mark, the melody only. It just was too much trouble to cut out those other notes. That's from the 1935 Presbyterian hymnal. They didn't care what Calvin felt. Okay, now, fourth verse. Here we go. Lord, our God is good. His mercy is forever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood. And shall from age to age endure. Stay nearby. You're helpful. Okay. Now, yeah. Thank you, Mark. Now, we say, well, where did it come from? It came from Psalm 100. Psalm 100, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. All right, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. That's uh, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, all that are on earth, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, worship him with gladness, serve with mirth, his praise forth tell, come before him with joyful songs, come before him and rejoice. See how it comes? Know that the Lord is God indeed. Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God. Without our aid, he did us make. It is he who made us. We are his flock. He doth us feed. We are his. We are his people. And for his sheep, he doth us take. The sheep of his pasture. See? So that's what, uh, that's a good Calvin song. Now, all of this is happening in mainland Europe. Meanwhile, what's happening over in England? And I need to pause here for a moment and say, yes, I'm concentrating today on Western civilization and Western music. We'll deal with issues out. To, you know, we've got to always remember God is not dwelling only in Western civilization and Western music. There are whole other cultures where God dwells just as much as he does here. 
And so we'll deal with those at another time. But right now, we're focusing on the Western development. So in England, well, we know with the church in England, it was flip-flopping between, uh, oh, let's be Catholic. No, let's don't be Catholic. Let's be Church of England. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we're going to be Reformed. No, we're not going to be Reformed. We're going to be Catholic. No, we're not going to be Catholic. We're going we're to do the middle way. And so the church, as you go back through those list lessons we had, was kind of moving back and forth. Now, there comes a time where there's a, a, a dissenting preacher who's got a kid. Any of you have children that were mildly precocious? Mildly. Yeah, all right, take the word mildly out and some of you will raise your hand. Um, Joe Barnett, my childhood preacher, is here with his son, Doug. I don't know if this ever happened to Joe, but I can tell you that the preacher comes home one day and his son says to him, Dad, I don't like the songs we're singing in church. And the dad says, well, if you don't like them, go write something better. And so this young boy named Isaac Watts says, okay, and writes, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. One of the most incredible Christian songs ever written. And that's not all he wrote. He was reading through his Bible and he found Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it inspired him to write a song. Here's his song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss. And pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And this is also a time where, if you remember one of our lessons, we talked about St. Ignatius Loyola and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And Loyola put out a spiritual exercises book. And one of the exercises he said was, go back and just, in your mind... Spend time meditating and thinking about Jesus on the cross and what it means for you. And Watts read that book and Watts did that. And we see this in the third and fourth verses. It's something very untypical for Christian songs at the time in, in the Protestant world. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, demands my life, demands everything I've got. I want that song sung at my funeral. That is just an incredible song. I'm so glad the dad said to his boy, if you can do better, do it. Because he did. <laughs> um, now, how are we doing time-wise? I didn't wear a watch today. We got, we got how much? We can go 10 minutes. Okay, then here's what we're going to do. We've read through this. I can't stop without singing this song, but we, so we may come back to it, but we're not going to sing it yet. Watts didn't just write great songs. He was a lyricist now. He's writing these lyrics. But at the same time in England, um, there's a German-born composer who's moved to England because he's got uh, uh, um, basically... Uh, a sponsorship from some royalty in England. The opera kind of wanes after a while. And by 1737, this uh, opera singer has gone broke. 
He's in bankruptcy. So he's always been, to our understanding at least, someone who's, who's a Christian, who's written Christian music, but he decides that maybe there's a market for Christian music that will get him out of his bankruptcy. Whereas opera, uh, Italian opera and German opera is just not selling, I guess, at the time in England. I don't know. So uh, he decides he's going to write some Christian music. And George Frederick Handel writes The Messiah in 1742. It's first performed in 1743. And it was the last thing he had performed before he died as well. It, it, the, the reception has never been less than awe-inspiring anywhere it's been sung. That, if you don't remember, is the Hallelujah Chorus and things like that. Um, now, in England, before Lennon and McCartney, there was this other songwriting duo, Watts and Handel. <laughs> Isaac Watts wrote a song that George Frederick Handel wrote the music for. And so you've got the guy who writes, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, teaming up with the author of the Hallelujah Chorus. You'd think it's a pretty good song, wouldn't you? Why don't you lead us in this one? Joy to the world. to the world the Lord is come let earth receive her king let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing that's pretty good huh yeah Next time someone says Lennon and McCartney, you just look at him and say, yeah, do you remember Watson Handel? Yeah. Isaac Watts, at the time, music's still a major controversial area. And, and Watts is a brilliant guy. He writes a textbook for logic that's used at Harvard, that's used at Oxford. He becomes a preacher himself, a music minister, incredible life, writes some incredible hymns, but he also puts forward some pretty good arguments for understanding church music. Here's what he says. The key is the content, not the form. Don't let Calvin and his people get stressed out because I put two notes to one syllable. God's not into the form. He wants the content there. I can sing, when I survey the a one. God's not going to say, ah, he said the, uh, instead of the, I'm tuning out that song. God's interested in the content, not form. He says, and the goal of worship is to ascribe God praise that's due him. That's what we're here to do. And if we're here to ascribe him praise, we should never limit ourselves just to the Psalms. Because all of us in our own experiences and in our own lives will find other things that draw forth from us expressions of praise. We don't pray merely with the Psalms. Neither should we praise merely with the Psalms. And uh, so Isaac Watts, huge, huge, huge. Also in the 1700s, we can't leave this alone without going back to the fella that caused us to digress on church music in the first place. And that was our study of Charles Wesley. Now, we sang a Charles Wesley song in church this morning. 
If you notice at the end where the lawyers make them put all of that stuff down at the bottom, if there's still a copy, it said uh, ARR period and had some guy's name 2002. Do you know what ARR period means? Arranged. He didn't write it. Wesley wrote it, Charles Wesley. It was the song we sang, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That was Charles Wesley. But our point for home today, our point for home is going to be a song. It's not going to be anything else, but it's a wonderful point for home for us on a Sunday. We're going to let Charles Wesley provide our point for home with a song he wrote. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Earth and heaven in chorus say, Hallelujah. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Now, you will quickly tell this was not a Calvin song. That Hallelujah has more than one note per syllable. But it's still a great song. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I ask you to stand up. We're going to sing this. And after we sing, however many verses Mark decides we're singing... We're just one, he says. We'll have a prayer while we're standing, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Would you lead us, please, Mark? Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Thongs of men and angels say, Hallelujah. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Hallelujah. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you so much for putting music not only in our hearts, but in your church and in your body. And we do come before you in praise and worship and celebrate that our God and our Heavenly Father is a God of creativity. We celebrate you as a God of, uh, who's worthy of praise, as a God of love, who's given us great gifts, who's provided us a rich heritage and history and a wonderful chance to learn it together. We praise you as a God who is in our midst as we worship you. And we thank you for, for drawing us out of ourselves and, and, and out of what's going on in our lives and into the presence of your throne room where we join with saints of the ages and with the angels saying, holy, holy, holy are you our God, worthy of all of our praise. We are so thankful to be your children. And we pray through our Savior Jesus. Amen.